All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, all that is involved in who you are, we're just super thankful. And so, Lord, we ask today that you would speak to us through your word, that you would guide us and lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit, who guides us into all truth, by your word, which is truth. And Lord, help us to just respond with lives of obedient service to you. So please have your way with us and guide us and lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, now, if, um, if you're visiting or if you're new, uh, we have a habit, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, we do an Old Testament piece and then move to a New Testament piece and then an Old Testament piece, New Testament piece. We recently finished Titus. Prior to that, well, prior to First and Second Timothy and Titus, we were in Ezekiel. So we're back to the Old Testament. What comes after Ezekiel? You're not there yet. Let's try it again. So if you're not, you wonder why I run long. It's because I have to repeat myself, right? So after Ezekiel comes, thank you. So it's good to have you back. So uh, if we talk about Daniel, you say, wait a minute. I have to do a little bit of a reset in my brain. Um, which means we're going to do a historical reset. Except I'm having technological difficulty. Um, we are embarking on a multimedia presentation here because we're that kind of church. You ever wonder, like, what kind of church are we anyway? We're this kind of church. Not quite, not, quite, not quite smoke, but multimedia. So we review history. And honestly, so let me, before we go back to a historical, prophetic, Old Testament book, uh, it's, Daniel is a prophet. Daniel is within a historical context. After the reign of King David, you know, the nation of Israel, after the reign of King David, his son Solomon, his son Rehoboam, during the time of Rehoboam, the nation of Israel was split into the northern kingdom that was uh, to be called Israel and the southern kingdom, which was to be called Judah. The northern kingdom was horribly sinful. Bad king after bad king after bad king. No good kings ever in the history of the northern, case, northern kingdom of Israel. They were then basically, uh, after lots of warning, they were carried off by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah remained. They had a few good kings, few bad kings, and finally they're going to be carried off by Babylon ultimately in 586 BC but that doesn't happen just like that okay it happens in sort of a series of skirmishes and so in my mind for many years I always like got these last few kings mixed up and these last few kings are the ones that give us the context for this sort of Babylonian conquest and really the rest of Old Testament history fair enough Everybody with me so far? Okay, good. And so, the last good king of the nation of Judah was a guy by the name of anybody? Josiah. Right up at the top there. Just north of my dead battery. So, um, it's going to be a good teaching today, don't you think? <laughs> this is awesome. There we go. Josiah. He was the last good king. He had three sons. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Jehoahaz reigns for three months, gets carried off by the, the Egyptians. His brother, Jehoiakim, reigns in Judah, and 
he gets carried off by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. All right? His son Jehoiachin reigns. He gets carried off by Babylon in 597 B.C. And then finally, his uncle Zedekiah reigns, and he is finally carried off for the final demise of Jerusalem and Judah in 586 B.C. And so, these three guys all play into the conquest of Judah by the nation of Babylon. Babylon came in, and for our purposes, they came in in 605, in 597, and then in five, ultimately in 586. All right? Now, in these conquests, Daniel and his buddies were carried off captive during that first conquest in 605 B.C. Ezekiel, you may recall we talked about Ezekiel, he was carried off captive in that second deportation in 597. All right? And then, uh, just for the historical pieces together, Jeremiah, you may recall, is, is still prophesying in Jerusalem during all this time. So the historical setting here is God has delivered lots of warnings, but he's not done delivering warnings. And in the process of that, the first conquest happens in 605 B.C., and Daniel finds himself now in, the, in Babylon, in the capital city of Babylon, of the nation of Babylon. Okay? And then a little bit later, Ezekiel will be carried off captive, but he'll be sort of in a He's, he's not in the main city. He's, uh, I think, about 50 miles south and basically think of it as a prison camp, okay? And then all the while, Jeremiah is remaining in Jerusalem. So if you kind of put these pieces together, you've got these three prophets that are all kind of contemporaries but in very different settings. Does that make sense? We talked about Jeremiah. He's preaching to the Jewish um, uh, people that are remaining, in, in Jerusalem, who haven't got carried off yet. He's preaching to them. Ezekiel, we talked about, uh, you know, during the book of Ezekiel, he's preaching to the Babylonian, or to the Jewish captives in this prison camp in Babylon, if you will. But Daniel is unique in that he's carried off to Babylon, but his ministry is going to be primarily in the context of sort of the hierarchy of Babylon. Does that make sense? So you got Jeremiah preaching to Jews in Jerusalem. You got Ezekiel preaching to Jews in Babylon. You got Daniel preaching to Babylonians in Babylon, and not just any Babylonians. You may know from you know Sunday school, the the elite of Babylon. Does that make sense? Does everybody got, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought you said. So um, everybody got all this together? There you go. So that is that. And how'd that multimedia thing pull off? Pretty good? So well that I had to, like, beg for support for that thing. Very good. So that's the context. As far as background, I want to give a little bit of background here. Daniel wrote this book. There's several references in the first person to this book. Here's what's kind of interesting to me. Liberal theologians often argue that Daniel did not write this book. You know why? Why, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. Because some of the prophecy that is... So Daniel, again, if you have a timeline, you go left to right. If you have a timeline and you prophesy, and you prophesy about a future event, but you're also going to prophesy about a yet future event, and we find ourselves even in the time, since the time of Jesus, between some of what Daniel prophesied and yet not yet what he's prophesied. Does that make sense? And some of this that he prophesies that did happen is so historically accurate that liberal theologians can't handle it. There's no way that a guy could be that prophetically accurate. So he had to be a historian, right? If you write events... If you write world events in future, we call it prophecy. If you write it in past, we call it history, right? We're reviewing both, in a sense. And so liberal theologians, they don't like the idea that he was so exact, spot-on, accurate that had to be, he had to be, like, had to have lived after all those events and yet before the time of Christ, and so he was writing history. But we 
can we accept that he writes prophecy? And can I, can I just take that one step further? Here's the problem with liberal theology. Theology means the study of God, right? Liberal theology is the study of God, except God can't be God. He's not allowed to be God, right? That's where we think, say, for the same reason they say Isaiah was written by two different people, right? Because the later events of Isaiah were so accurate that only a historian could write it. Well, God's allowed to be God. Do we worship a God who's allowed to be God? Can he do anything? What limits can we put on him? None. Right? Oh, we can say things like he can't lie. I mean, you've heard these whole, you know, he, he can't lie. He can't not be God. He can't be unloving, right? I mean, God's attributes are God's attributes. But God is able to uh, predict historical events and give them to a prophet, right? I mean, we, we kind of hang on that, right? And we kind of hang on the fact that um, all the manuscripts, all the archaeology, all the prophecy, all of the, all of the analysis that it's, that's ever been done to this book has upheld it. That's a whole other discussion. Fair enough? If you, and I, as, I, as I say that, if you have a problem with that, let me, let, let me respectfully tell you, look it up. Study it. Evaluate it. The, there's, there's infinitely more verification, historical and otherwise, that this book is exactly what it says it's, what it claims to be, than the existence of Julius Caesar, right? If I say Julius Caesar was a Roman king a long time ago, you, nobody throws tomatoes at me, right? But if we say this is the inspired and errant word of God, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If I say that, then not in this room, but people throw tomatoes. Right? So just study it. That's all I'd say to that. Final point of introduction as it relates to us, application to us. Daniel is interesting in that he's probably one of two people, most commentators would say, in the Old Testament that nothing bad is written about him. The other being Joseph, right? Not Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, but Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of the 12 patriarchs. Now, even there, you could split hairs and say sometimes Joseph maybe like when Joseph said, hey guys, I had a dream that you guys were going to serve me, right? You'd have to see the video to know whether he was like na 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 about it, right? And if he was just talking facts, then we'll say, yeah, he, there was nothing set, bad said about him. But, but clearly there's nothing, you know, you know every other er, even the good characters in the Old Testament, we see their weak spots. And that's, that's good, right? It's good that we get a full perspective, right? But Daniel and Joseph are probably the two guys that there's nothing bad said about. And in my mind, I kind of process this a little bit in my head, right? I think, well, what about Daniel and Joseph? Man, they must have had, like, a great scenario to be able to be that faithful, that nothing bad would be said about them. They must have had, like, an easy-peasy life, right? Both of them were carried off captive, both of them were carried off captive into pagan cultures. Both carried off captive as teenagers. Both had innumerable reasons to whine about their lives. And both are arguably the most faithful people in the Old Testament. They were both dealt injustice. And in my mind, again, I process, right? I think, well, who had a good life, <laughs> we'll just say? If those guys had a hard life, who had a good life? And the first person that comes to my mind is Solomon. How'd it work out for him? No, it was so good. He turned away. 
He had every opportunity handed to him in a golden goblet. And he basically led the downfall of the nation of Israel. It's not about our circumstances. It's not about having an easy life and getting all of our details worked out. Can I emphasize that? We have a choice to be faithful, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our injustices that we've been dealt, regardless of all of that stuff. We have a choice to be faithful, and we know it to be true because Daniel did it, and Joseph did it. And if anything, sometimes having a Solomon life is a liability. Fair enough? So, in the third year of, oh, did I mention, before we get nervous, we're only going to talk about the first seven verses of Daniel today. I should have said that at the very beginning, right? I'm sorry. First seven verses, we're going to break this up a little bit. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that was the, bro- the second of the three brothers, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasury, into the treasure house of his God. Fair enough. Now, is it cold in here? I'm just asking. I see some people bundling up. Can we? Nate's got it. I mean, I don't think my words are that chilling, but. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar comes. And this is, you can track down from historical records, this would be 605 B.C. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, this is a great balance of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Nebuchadnezzar comes in his own man-made, kind of on a, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he's coming to Jerusalem and he's going to take it. And he besieges it. And he's got a strategy and he's going to develop that strategy. And then it says, and the Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. You see that? So... Not to break it down theologically, but I think it's important that we pause on this just for a second and consider, because oftentimes you find yourself saying, I wonder what the Lord is doing, right? I mean, in our home, that topic comes up all the time. I wonder what the Lord is doing. I wonder what I'm supposed to be doing. I wonder how to evaluate this. And a lot of times we look at a situation and we try to evaluate it. Well, I got a metaphor. Can I share with you a metaphor? I think you'll like it. One of us in the room loves it, okay? So um, we've been playing a lot of basketball in the barn at our house. Fair enough? And um, I like basketball the way it's played in the Murphy, in the, in the Murphy barn um, because we can incorporate kids of all ages, right? The grandkids can play, and we can kind of integrate it, and some of the uh, younger Murphys can play, and... And even a senior Murphy shows up and plays once in a while, right? Well, there was a, not long ago, I forget what it was, and I forget exactly what the matchups were, but I think it was just me and grandkids maybe. Or maybe me and younger kids and grandkids. But, and we got one of these, let me just highly recommend this to y'all, all you people when you get 60, is one of these adjustable uh, goals. You know what I'm talking about? So we dial this, so I'm playing the grandkids, right? Me and the grandkids are playing ball. We crank this thing down such that I can take my 60-year-old athletic self and slam dunk flat-footed, <laughs> right? And so, you know, I got a grandkid guarding me. Whoever it is, I forget who it is, passes the ball into me, right? I take my 60-year-old athletic self and mosey on over to the hoop. And I stretch out a little bit, and I score two points, Right? Is that because my offense is awesome <laughs> or because their defense is not? Right? 
Did Jehoiakim get conquered by Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar's offense was awesome? Or was it because God had actually removed the defense from Jehoiakim? You get this? Like, not only did, not only did Jehoiakim have bad defense, you could argue he had negative defense. Does that make sense? You see this in the early, one of my favorite stories on this is, is in the early uh, chapters there of 1 Samuel, right? The Philistines come. In those days, Eli was, you may recall the context, Eli was the, uh, was, um, the priest, and his sons were wicked, and there was just sort of bad leadership all over the place. And they were walking away from the Lord, and, and they were using the ark like it was a good luck charm. And, and they bring this ark to battle, so they say, maybe it'll help us, right? And the Philistines beat them, right? Why did the Philistines beat them? Because Israel's defense was negative, right? God said, you want to reject me? All right. I need to let you know lovingly how that works for you, right? And they're defeated. And then Philistines have the ark, right? And they're thinking that their offense is awesome. And so they take that ark, and what do they do? They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Because in those days, right, a superiority of an army really means your god is superior, but what they misinterpreted was actually their God played negative defense for the Jewish people. And so what happens, you know the story. Uh, they go in the next morning and Dagon is falling down on the ground, right? And they prop him back up, which I love what Damien Kyle says. If your God has to be propped up, probably ought to think again. And they go back and they go in the next day and Dagon is broken down. And I think his head and his hands are broken off, his wisdom and his power are removed in the presence of the ark and you know a lot of other stuff and next thing you know they say we gotta get rid of this ark <laughs> right so don't confuse offense and defense does that make sense i hope that helps but here's the deal judah is so rebellious by this time in their history that god is removing the defense God is removing the defense so much that he's going to actually give them warnings. That's why they come in 605 and then in 597, and they still don't get it. And finally, their demise in 586. So just be careful, if I can just say it this way, about trying to sort out. Number one, be careful trying to sort out what God is doing if, if you think your offense is awesome. That may or may not be the case. But know also, you need God's defense. Because we live in a hostile world. We're going to read more about this. We live in a hostile world. We live in a world that's antagonistic to Jesus Christ. Simply put, there's no better way to put it. We live in a world that is antagonistic to the things of God, and we need God to play defense for us. And when we try to play defense on our own, we're in deep trouble. Right? So, Verse 3 goes on. So, what, what's happened? Judah's defense is removed. Nebuchadnezzar comes. He conquers. And he takes Jehoiakim, the king. And he takes a bunch of the articles. And they carry it off into the Shinar, the house of his God. And they think they got this great victory. And then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had, the ability, who had ability to serve in the king's palace. Right? So if you work for a company that's got an HR department, what's it called? What's HR stand for? Human resources, right? Humans are resources, Right? One day, I mean, truthfully, in our day of political correctness, that term's going to go away for sure, right? We're going to have a, like a kumbaya, one big happy family department instead of a human resources department, right? But that's, I don't want to give them any ideas to change my vocabulary further. But anyway, human resources. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. We need some human resources from, we just conquered this, this land, Right? We took the articles of silver and gold, putting them in our temple of our pagan god, right? Let's take some of their people, right? 
So who are they going to take? Are they going to take the slaves? Are they going to take the ill, the old? No. They're going to take young, good-looking, nobles, wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, and they're the ones that are going to serve in the king's palace. Right? They take the best and the brightest. Right? That's one of the main strategies of the people of Babylon. And they took along with them some of the king's descendants, right? So that way, you know, king wants to rebel a little bit. Guess what? His descendants are in the, in the uh, Babylonian king's court. Now keep in mind, before we, as we kind of break this down, this is not just a historical event. I think this is a biblical picture, okay? Babylon, where did Babylon start? Anybody? Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel and the kingdom of Babylon were sort of the beginning of a work of rebellion against the Lord. Led by a man by the name of, Bible students, Nimrod. Nice. Nimrod, right? It says he was a mighty hunter. The translation really, he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was antagonistic to God. We don't need God. We can be self-sufficient. Does this resonate today? We can be self-sufficient. Matter of fact, what, does God do for, what did God do for us lately? We'll build our own Tower of Babel to reach up into the heavens. And we'll make a name for ourselves. That's the essence of Babel. That then becomes, uh, through the Scripture, you know, um, illustrated, if you will, by the kingdom of Babylon, right? And it doesn't stop there. It goes all the way into Revelation chapter 17, and 17 through 19, where we see the demise of the kingdom of Babylon. What's the kingdom of Babylon by the time we get to Revelation 17, 18, and 19? It's a one-world sort of political, economic, and religious system that, guess what? Just like the Tower of Babel, what is this one? It's antagonistic to God right? And so what we see, you know, we got a snapshot of it right here. We got Babylon. We got a real historical man named Nebuchadnezzar. We got real historical hanging gardens of Babylon. We got all of that. But make no mistake about it, what we have is a picture of a, of a, of a fight against the Lord that started in the Tower of Babel and is carried through to historical Babylon and into Revelation 17, 18, 19, the one world government, which may in fact be right around the corner, right? And so, who wins? God wins. God wins. But what we see here is really a snapshot of a great historical, you know, throughout the span of time, fight between good and evil, between God and the enemies of God. And so, uh, we need to kind of see it like that. So, and so that's so these people they're going to come and Babylon is going to be Babylon is going to take these people the best and the brightest the you know all of that the ones that the world values they're going to be captured taken taken and uh, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans now Chaldean is another word for the Babylonians okay so these people and. You've probably figured out by now, one of them is Daniel, uh, are going to be taken. They're going to be sort of set apart so they could be taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Isn't that awesome? Just kind of warms your heart, makes your heart go pitter-patter a little bit. We're carrying off these captives, right? And you know, bless their hearts, they're going to have a hard time adjusting to Babylonian culture. So let's teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonian culture. Let's take them to school. Let's educate them in our universities. You like that? It sounds like they're treating these guys pretty good. they got a thing going. Do you see it for what it is? Right? You see it for what it is, right? You see it for what it is, right? And it happens today, right? You bet it does. If Babylon can lure the best and the brightest to its ideology, then it wins the cultural 
battle. If Babylon can lure the best and the brightest to its ideology, it wins the cultural battle. And that is alive and well today like never before. Certainly never in my lifetime. We are in a great cultural battle like never before. If you want to if you want a much better rant on this than I will give you, I recently finished a book uh, called Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher, D-R-E-H-E-R. I would strongly encourage you guys to read this book as it relates to our modern day. It is so uh, chilling. And here's the idea. He used this term soft totalitarianism, Right? And basically, here's the, here's the kicker. This Babylonian technique is the same technique that was used by Nazi Germany before the Nazis declared themselves as to be the evil force that they were. This is the same technique that was used by uh, communist Russia before they declared themselves to be the evil entity that they were. It's a, it's the soft totalitarianism is... You know, let's just kind of all come into our fold together. Let's just learn. Hey, no harm. Let's just learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Right? Let's all just kind of, kind of get on the train. Right? Let's be a little more tolerant. Is this getting real? This is real. What happened in Babylon happened in Nazi Germany, happened in Soviet Russia, and is, you can make an argument, is alive and well today in America. Now, is that hate speech? That's just a historical observation. It's just a historical observation. But it is real. You know, they don't teach these captives about Babylonian warfare. They don't take them to their military camps. You catch this? I mean, the Babylonians are smart. They're smart. They don't teach them warfare. They don't teach them FBI stuff. They teach them how to be a good Babylonian. How to to adapt to our culture. And the reality is, we all live according to our culture and our worldview. Can I catch this? Can I give you this? Whatever your culture, whatever your worldview, that's how you live. I hope you catch by now, if you've been in this church more than 12 minutes, which you all have. My messaging is going to always be, God loves you. God loves you beyond what you can fathom. Jesus Christ died for you because he wants to have fellowship with you. And then I'll tell you, in response to that, live your life. I mean, does it sound, I mean, is that what I always say? You think I'll say something like that next week? I bet I will. Haven't made my notes yet, but I bet I will. Right? See, if we can, if we can get the upstream right, the downstream takes care of itself. Right? Do I need to, you know, if, if I tell you God loves you, hey, live your lives accordingly, do I need to walk around and micromanage everybody and tell you how much to put in the offering plate? Never. Never. If I tell you God loves you, and and if you get it, by the way, some get it and some don't, that's okay. But if I tell you God loves you, and if if we all can grasp, oh my goodness, I can't believe how good he is to me. It's amazing how good he is to me. How can I just live my life in response to that? I don't need to tell you anything about what you need to do. Right? 
That's the message. What are the Babylonians doing? They're redirecting the upstream. Right? You know, if I could just be a if I could just get Daniel to think like a Babylonian, the rest is easy. Right? And if a totalitarian culture can get us to think in totalitarian in a totalitarian worldview, the rest is easy. So, bear with me. I just recently finished this book. I'm fired up. All right? That's the point. That's the messaging of this, uh, of this whole beginning. And that's why I wanted to break this into two, cha- into two, this first chapter into two weeks, because I think the message we got to get is to recognize that this technique is classic. This technique is classic. They want to teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Verse 5. And the king appointed for them daily provision of the king's delicacies. Aww. The king's delicacies. That's awesome. And of the wine which he drank. The king's wine which he drank. This guy's awesome. Nebuchadnezzar. And for three years of training for them. So that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Three years of training. Three years of education. Can I tell you this while I'm on a little bit of a rant? Education never, get this, education never happens in a cultural vacuum. Education is never simply the facts. By definition. It's an expression of, it's, it's, a, it's a transfer of information, but it comes with it a worldview, right? It comes with it some cultural bias. And if we think it doesn't, we're just naive, right? Education is never, it never happens in a cultural or a worldview vacuum, Ever. So these guys are going to get three years of of education. They're going to get the king's delicacies, his wine. Man, this prisoner thing is working out pretty good. Don't you think? They're paying my way. They're giving me, like, free tuition. Sorry, that one stung a little bit, right? They're going to... They're going to, like, give me food and shelter? Man, Nebi is taking care of me. Don't you think? He's not all bad. You guys are just extremists. You don't realize what a good guy he is. He's educating me. He's feeding me. He's teaching me the culture. He's indoctrinating me. He's indoctrinating me. He's indoctrinating me. And if we are ambiguous about that at all, it goes on. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were this guy Daniel that the book is written about. Also Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but he changed their names a little bit. To them, he, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel means, God is my judge. Belteshazzar means, Bel's prince. Bel was the national god of Babylon. We talked earlier about identity, right? I mean, your name bears with it a bit of identity, especially in the Jewish culture, right? In the Jewish culture, your name meant something, right? I mean, all the way back, right? God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Abram was the father of, Abraham was the father of nations. Isaac's name meant what? Laughter, 
right? Because Abraham and because Sarah left when she was told she was going to have a child. I mean, all these things we we see throughout Jacob and Esau. Their name had meaning. All these names had meaning, particularly in the Jewish culture. So Daniel, the name meaning God is my judge, is changed to Bel's prince. That's just downright creepy, is it not? Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. You know what Shadrach means? Illuminated by the sun god. That's creepy. Mishael means who is as God. Like, I want to be like God. Not like, you know, in a, in a new agey sort of a way, but like, you know, I want to be like in Romans 8, conformed into the image of Christ. Meshach means who is like Shaq. Well, Charles Barkley's like Shaq. <laughs> you would have been disappointed if I didn't do that, wouldn't you? Right? I mean, Patrick Ewing was like Shaq. Charles Barkley's like Shaq. All these guys are like Shaq. No, Shaq was a reference to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. Ishtar. Azariah means the Lord is my help. Abednego means servant of Nego. Nego was considered to be the equivalent of Lucifer. You get this? Can I read those again? Thank you. Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel's prince. Bel being the national god of Babylon. Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. Shadrach means illumined by the sun god. Mishael means who is as God. Meshach means who is like Shaq, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. And Azariah means the Lord is my help. Abednego means servant of Nego, the equivalent of Lucifer. Think names matter? Yeah. Think these guys are being indoctrinated? Yeah. Think they're given a think they're being like taught Babylonian warfare? Well, yes and no. Right? They're not being taught how to shoot the guns, right? But they're taught much more. They're taught how to think like a Babylonian, upstream kind of a thing, if you will. Right? Because when they, if they can think like a Babylonian, if they can uh, live like a Babylonian, if they can be a Babylonian in terms of their identity, even carry the name of a Babylonian, then nobody needs to worry about babysitting them when push comes to shove and we need them to be acting like a Babylonian. This is alive and well in our culture today. I believe I would be irresponsible not to call it for what it is as I stand here today. I believe I've been placed here by God. I don't want to make it dramatic. But I feel like I've been placed here by God. I could be wrong. I've been placed here by God to call it for what it is. As we read this chapter, these verses in this chapter, I believe I've been called by God to call it for what it is. There's a long pattern all the way back to the 6th century B.C. and beyond in reality, but we see it recorded. We see it recorded since the 6th century B.C., the technique in which people are lulled to sleep by indoctrination. <clears throat> we live in a world, and it's, so it happened there. And as again, as I've said in this book, it's highlighted by the fact that it was this exact same technique in Nazi Germany. It was the exact same technique in Soviet Russia, which, by the way, we, Nazi Germany always gets a lot of press for how many people they killed ruthlessly. Soviet Russia was way worse. Way worse. And it's the exact same setup that we see today. So, beware of education. Beware of whining and dining. Beware of worldviews. 
Beware that the world has a complex way of telling us what we think, what we value, and who we are. And if we're not careful, we will fall for it. And don't think you're naive. Don't think you're, you're above that. Please know how vitally important, again, like never before, how important it is that we understand the, the truth of Scripture just to keep our brains focused. You know, it's interesting, one of the things in this book, the Live Not By Lies book, he highlights the problem, part one, and part two, like any good book, highlights some possible solutions. And there were two that stuck out to me. The power of healthy families and the power of healthy church communities. Now, we all don't have the exact same family dynamic, and I'm, thank I'm honestly thankful for that. I don't want everybody's family to look like mine. You know, some churches are like the big family homeschool church, right? And if you got, you know... You get two kids, you feel like something's wrong with you, right? I mean, I don't want to do that. I want us to be a, a representation of the body of Christ, frankly. Everybody doesn't have to look like me. My kids don't have to look like me. But there is a sense of community that needs to be encouraged. And this is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this. When we come to church, as I said earlier, when we come to church, it's, yes, it's to worship the Lord. Yes, it's to hear from, hear from His Word. But also, catch this, yes, it's to build community. Anybody see the Surgeon General uh, issue this week? Anybody see this? Issued, a, I forget exactly what he called it, a, like a declaration or a proclamation or or something that we have a, um, somebody help me out, what do you call it? Uh, we have a crisis, if you will, of uh, a public health crisis of loneliness in America, right? I mean, there's lots of factors. But one of, and he outlined, I think, six pillars of way we can combat this as a nation, pillar number one was to develop community in places like faith-based groups. Now, most of you know enough about what I think about public health. I was pretty elated to hear the Surgeon General of the United States of America say something I thought was reasonable. As, uh, what do I know? I mean, I'm a doctor, right? I know what causes health and wellness as well as what causes sickness and disease, right? Yeah, loneliness causes, uh, it impairs longevity and all kinds of crazy things. And we all need to, you know, recognize that. And I recognize that everybody's situation is unique and all of that. But one of the, one of the pillars outlined by our Surgeon General is the sense of community. Guess what? That's also one of the things that is in this book that helps us combat soft totalitarianism, right? We need to build one another up. We need to build one another up. Beware of indoctrination. Daniel and his friends are going to have to stand up to some serious indoctrination if they're going to faithfully serve the Lord. We're going to read about this a little bit starting next week. They're going to have to stand up to some serious indoctrination. You know, the day may come, the day may be here now, that we have to stand up to some serious indoctrination. That we need to say, I'm sorry, but respectfully, my Bible says this. And you're not going to change my name to who is like Shaq. Right? That's why it's so important. So important. Please catch this. And, I'm, and then I'm done. We got to think of it upstream. 
right? God loves us. God is in control of all of human history. The only reason that Daniel is in Babylon, right, is because Nebuchadnezzar came and Jehoiakim was given into his hand. The only reason that they're in Babylon and that we're talking about Babylon is that the nation of Judah walked away from the Lord, basically starting since the days of Solomon. There would be no conversation about Babylon outside of that. Now, God is, you know, God is God. God's given Daniel an opportunity. We have the lessons to learn from Daniel, and it has value that way. But keep in mind upstream, we follow the Lord faithfully. We appreciate all of His love and His goodness. We respond with appreciation to His love and His goodness. Everything else works out. Does that mean we have easy times? No. Does that mean we might be carried off captive to Babylon? Maybe even as a young person? Yep, it's possible. Who wins in the end of this story? Daniel or all the Babylonians? You don't need to read the end of the story, right? Daniel's a rock star in the, body, in, the, in the Bible. Daniel's an absolute, unequivocal rock star in the Bible. And oh, by the way, we know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because that's how we grew up, right? But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're rock stars in the Bible. They don't have it easy, but they're rock stars. We may not have it easy, but we need to recognize the world we live in we need to recognize the goodness of God and the truth of his scripture and the power of his Holy Spirit to live faithfully let's pray Lord we thank you that you give us all we need for life and godliness and Lord sometimes even in that we sometimes feel overwhelmed by our circumstances by this world by a variety of things. But Lord, we thank you that you are able to deliver us in any culture, in the midst of any worldview. Lord, when the world tries to give us the king's delicacies, help us to respectfully know what that is. Help us to see it for what it is. And when they try to change our names and change our vocabulary, Lord, help us to respectfully and kindly and please graciously see it for what it is. And help us to respond to this world with the message that Jesus died for every single person. That there's no us and them. That there's no our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so, Lord, help us to be gracious with people and help us to respond to your love with lives of faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.